welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. My name is Morgan. I'm here with my co-host, Gabia. Hello. And this week, we're going to be talking about Whit Stillman's adaptation of Jane Austen's novel, Lady Susan, which is called Love and Friendship, which is in theaters across America and the UK now. Uh, we both saw this movie within the past week or so and both really liked it. So we are excited to be talking about it and some other general stuff about Jane Austen this week. I am a huge Jane Austen fan. I have read almost everything of hers that is like available to be read that's been published. Um, so I am very excited about getting into that this week. Um, I'm starting a degree in the fall in 19th century literature, so I'm like raring to go. I have lots of thoughts. I think Gab is slightly less of an expert on this topic. Yeah, I'm not like a Jane Austen hater, but I also have, I think I've read Pride and Prejudice when I was 12, and I've obviously seen a bunch of the movies and kind of adaptations along the lines of Lizzie Bennett Diaries. So, like, I'm aware, but by no means an expert. Yeah, which which is fine. We'll, we'll balance each other out. We'll muddle through. <laughs> so I guess we should start by summarizing just generally the plot of the film um, for people who haven't had a chance to see it yet. We will get into the ending at the end of the podcast, but we'll warn you when we do. So if you haven't seen it, you can listen along up to that point. Do you want to get into the summary a little bit before I go off on a tear about the history of the novel so that I'm not <laughs> talking for 20 minutes. Sure. So Kate Beckinsale stars as this uh, lady in early middle age who's an aristocrat with no money, whose rich husband recently died. And she's very manipulative. She's like a classic Slytherin, very ambitious. When I was watching it, I was just thinking that she's the classic example of one of these people who sort of always tells people they really hate drama. Like, I just I just really dislike drama, you know? And it's like, after a while, you kind of start to realise it's because they're constantly at the eye of the storm of self-created drama. And the kind of the story is about her trying to get a husband for either her or her eligible teenage daughter or both. And her daughter is basically quite a nice person. Um, she just wants to be left alone and have a nice life, but she can't because her mother is a maniac. And she sort of moves in with some distant relatives, a woman named Catherine, who's married to a nice bumbling idiot with lots of money, and um, her brother, Reginald de Courcy, who's a young, handsome, somewhat naive love interest in a silly rom-com, but maybe not the one that the main character gets together with. And it's about her manipulating these various characters in an attempt to get them on her side. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. It's actually her in-laws. So it's her dead husband's Ah, family. okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which makes it all much more awkward. <laughs> they don't like her and didn't want him to have married her. And then he just died and she's like flirting with everyone, including the, uh, the brother of, of the wife in this, in this whole mess. So lots of shenanigans ensue from this, um, which we'll get to in a little bit, but it's really funny and enjoyable, particularly to have this female protagonist who's manipulating everyone in this way, which is a little uncommon um, for literature of this time period in general, but particularly for Jane Austen's novels, where that's not really where she went um, in her writing. This was something that she wrote earlier on and then was never actually published. It's technically unfinished, although if you read it, the plot is basically all there. I read it last week and I was expecting it to be quite unfinished because that's how it's described. And the adaptation definitely adds a lot, but the basic plot is essentially all there. Like the ending, he didn't have to make up because there were, you know, 50 pages that should have been there and there weren't. But I wanted to start by giving a brief sort of little history of the novel to contextualize this because this is what I do, I hope that this won't be too boring. Um, but the book that Austin was working on that turned into Lady Susan and then wasn't published was an epistolary novel, um, which for those of you not familiar with the term basically means that it was letters written back and forth, which also makes this adaptation pretty interesting because it's not something like Pride and Prejudice where you have these scenes with dialogue back and forth. A lot of the letters don't have any dialogue at all. Um, and in the 18th century, this was a lot of how the modern novel, as we think of it, was developed. Um, was people writing letters back and forth to each other or other kind of like documents or fake memoirs, which makes sense because they didn't have anything to go on. Like the novel as a thing didn't exist. Um, and the guy who people generally think of as being like the major person who sort of 
popularized this in English was Samuel Richardson. And Austin really loved his work. Um, and he had wrote three books. The first one was Pamela, which became this massive phenomenon. There was even a parody of it that someone else wrote called Shamala. And then a book called Clarissa in 1748. And the plot is like really complicated and convoluted. I have not read Clarissa. It's like 1500 pages long, but his goal was basically to like moralize to young women about their behavior um, and like what they shouldn't do and how they shouldn't get involved with like bad men. But he wrote this character as the like male lead who was really tortured and like kind of acted badly, but was really compelling. And his name was Lovelace. And so all the people reading this book thought that the reason that it didn't work out between Clarissa and Lovelace at the end was that Clarissa did everything wrong and they all loved Lovelace. And he was like, shit, like this didn't work out the way I planned. So the last book he wrote was called Sir Charles Grandison. And Apparently, I also have not read this because, like, no one reads Sir Charles Grandison. It's, like, the most boring book ever. Like, it's just this very, like, proper man. And he does everything right. And, like, multiple women are fighting over him because he's so proper. And it was, like, the, like no one liked this. But Jane Austen loved this book. Apparently, she just absolutely loved it. After she was dead, her nephew, I think, who was, like, in charge of dealing with her papers, said that she could describe all that was ever said or done by like anyone in the book. She just like referenced it all the time. There was a great piece in the New Yorker recently about Richardson and all this stuff that we'll link to. I think even if you're not like interested in this, it was super fascinating and like funny. And I thought this was really fascinating because Lady Susan is like often described um, like the character as basically a like gender inversion of Lovelace. Like she's really manipulative. She's flirting with everyone. Like she's trying to get someone to marry her or her daughter. But Austin's favorite book of Richardson's was the one where the protagonist is really dull. <laughs> like there's like not a lot of conflict. And in fact, her uh, uh, sense of sensibility and pride and prejudice were originally written as epistolary novels too. And then when she revised them, she changed them because literature had basically moved on from that. And so for me, watching this film as someone who has read a lot of these books and seen most of the movie adaptations, one of the things that was super interesting was how different the sort of tone was. And part of that is that Whit Stillman um, is a very kind of distinctive director and has a distinctive sense of humor. And a lot of the dialogue he had to write himself because of the nature of the text he was working with, but that there was just a totally different moral tone, right? In Austin's work, it's like most of the characters are fundamentally like pretty decent people, not all of them. Wickham in Pride and Prejudice is not a very nice man, but they're mostly pretty nice people and mostly the bad guys lose if there are bad guys and like good things happen to good people. And in this film, the dynamic is quite different. The protagonist is totally so much fun to watch and she's so funny, but like, she's awful. <laughs> she treats her daughter so horribly. It's, and it's like hilarious, but you're watching it and you're just like, oh no. It's like a point of view reversal because in any other book of that type, the main characters would be Reginald de Courcy, the nice, handsome young man, and Lady Susan's daughter, who's a bit shy and retiring, but ultimately well-meaning and has a shit mother. And then, you yes. know, and also kind of Catherine, like the nice family. And then they'd have this villain who comes in and causes chaos. But instead, we're like, it's so much more fun <laughs> to have stuff from like the perspective of this person. Right. And like, she is so unapologetic about everything that she's doing. And really self-aware as well, because it's not one of these things where you have yes. a character who's doing bad stuff and they're kind of excusing it, because you have these, you have like a lot of the exposition in the movie takes place between Lady Susan and her best friend, who's this American lady played by Chloe Savigny. And they just have conversations where they're just talking about all of her, her future plans to, you know, fuck up everyone's lives. And she's just stating these incredibly malevolent plans. She's like, well, you know, you've got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so she's kind of seducing Reginald, the young guy, but kind of not. It's unclear the extent to which she she's is taking doing it seriously, it seriously right? Yeah. And actually in the book, she is writing her friend all these letters being like, obviously I'm not interested in this guy in a serious way but it's just fun right? to like make him like me. And then it sort of seems like her attitude might be shifting. But 
when her daughter comes to stay with them and the daughter basically like runs away from her school because she's so miserable and then she has to go live with her mother, which is even worse. She's saying to everyone, oh, my daughter doesn't listen to me and like I'm so worried about her and all this stuff. And she really turns uh, Reginald against her daughter and the rest of the family is kind of like, what is going on? This is such a mess. And she's acting so put upon. And then in the letters to her friend, she's like, my daughter is such a bore. <laughs> like, I can't stand her. It's such a pain in the ass to have to deal with her. Like, she's, like everything else she's saying, completely undercut. Like, you could tell that, like, she's just full of shit. And there's that dynamic in the film, too, of, like, her acting one way with one character in a seemingly, like, totally sincere fashion. And then she goes and turns around with someone else and it's like, ugh. It's like reality TV when there's a huge bitch character that you have to watch. Yes. Which then is interesting because Austin's books are all romances. And this technically is, too... Um, I mean, I would not describe this as, a, this as a romance at all, because it's technically about people trying to form marriages, but it's more just like a straight comedy. Yeah, there is ultimately a romantic plot. Yeah. And I think you're rooting for it for various reasons. I mean, are you? <laughs> kind of, and kind then of. not you're really. Kind of, it kind of rooting for it. <laughs> but it's not because the romance is that compelling. It's for other... No, and that's on purpose. Like, like it's not designed yeah. to be a film that's about a love story. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things I found interesting was that Reginald is, like, a total nothing character. He's played by an actor whose name I don't know, sorry, um, who's, like, perfectly pleasant and, and fine, but he's not interesting, which isn't a problem in the film. Like, it, it, his his job is not to be interesting. His job is to be manipulated by... Oh, his name is Xavier Samuel. That All right. That's an actor <laughs> there. And then, like, obviously, the setup becomes that, like, the daughter kind of has a crush on him. And he's just like, but she's terrible because Lady Susan has told me all these awful things about her. And you're just like, oh, God, like, what just a mess. Wonderful. <laughs> right? But one of the things I found interesting about reading the book, if you can really call it a book, is that he's actually more interesting in that because he's slightly less of a sort of just, like, pretty boy. <laughs> I mean, like, he, I guess he has to be because it's not a film. But... He's described in like the in the well, like letter he sends to his sister about coming to visit. He describes himself as a very distinguished flirt and like he really wants to meet Lady Susan because he's like curious about her. And he already thinks her daughter is terrible like before he's met her and there's a great quote in that first letter that I have written down because I was just like whoa, you're an asshole where he says about the daughter where pride and stupidity unite, there can be no dissimulation worth, you, no, worth notice, and Miss Vernon shall be consigned to unrelenting contempt. But by all that I can gather, Lady Susan possesses a degree of captivating deceit, which will, must be pleasing to witness and detect. And I was like, who are you? Like, that's awful. I definitely prefer this version. Like, so <laughs> much. I definitely prefer the movie version. So... Like, they kind of turned him into just, like, dumb man, like, who just is sort of like, whoa. Like. Yeah, but you kind of you kind of don't want her who's on Lady Susan's level. Like, you don't want her to have an antagonist. Like, and I also, if she did, you'd want her to end up with him, because that's the sort of Shakespearean ending, is having the two assholes end up together. Yes. Although, in the book, he rapidly turns into, I mean, like, he he's, turns into an idiot quite, quite quickly. But I found it interesting, again, that, like, she is writing these sort of like unpleasant people doing all of this stuff. And then there are sort of like the other women are just like put upon dealing with all of this. Um, but that in the film, Lady Susan is allowed to assume this sort of like power as a result of her total lack of a moral code, right? Like she just doesn't care about anybody else at all except her friend um and her friend just enables her 
Like, that is her total rule in her life, is that she disagrees with her and does whatever she says and is like, yes, okay, that's great. But also, um, like, I think the thing with her friend, it's not even wholly proven that she cares about her friend. It's more like they both find each other entertaining. The friend, it's implied, has a similar life attitude to Lady Susan. And the end goal was marrying this rich old man played by Stephen Fry. But unfortunately, Stephen Fry's gout hasn't killed him off yet. So she's <laughs> looking for kicks and she's waiting to hear the latest missive from Lady Susan. It's not like a deep emotional relationship. It's just they, they're they useful to Common each other. interests. <laughs> but like by her having this level of power that the other characters don't have, it doesn't mean that she always gets her way exactly, but she kind of does. <laughs> and her ability to manipulate... It's, I guess men specifically, she can't really do it with women. Um, it's just, like so immensely powerful that it's almost like a superpower. Like it's amazing. It's amazing to witness. For people who haven't seen the film, it's not like she's sort of vixenish. I know that like no. for some people, that's how you might kind of be envisioning Kay Beckinsale, but it's very much playing into male pride and that sort of thing. It's not really her being a seductress. No, she's very clever. Like she's clearly very very smart and obviously the era in which she's living has certain codes right and part of what is interesting to me about the text and the film is that it plays with those codes while she is also a character who is existing slightly outside of them so both in austin's i mean in austin's books specifically but also a lot of the other stuff from that period like the way that like people in the upper class lived and interacted with each other was so important because if you didn't behave yourself appropriately you could be sort of like cast out of society um and in real life it wasn't quite as extreme as what austin is necessarily writing like she's writing kind of idealized romances a lot of the time um but this is quite different because she's writing this character and the film is portraying this character who is a flirt like her husband has just died and the reason she goes and stays with um her in-laws is that she's just been kicked out of this other house because she was, was hitting so on the husband up, right with the husband there that the wife of that guy kicked her out of the house um and so she is not well liked in society and so then her sort of job is basically like, okay, how am I going to survive this? Like, how am I going to function? And a lot of it is, like, they don't have any money. Like, someone has to get married because that's the only way that they can get money as sort of, like, upper-class people. Like, obviously, there are women did work in certain capacities at that time, but you really the option was yeah. you had to get married. And then um, her strategy is basically to find people who are naive and then gaslight them into thinking that all of the rumors are just a cruel lie. Right, exactly. Which is <laughs> There's quite... so much gaslighting in this film, but it's incredible. <laughs> um, but what I think the film does really well is simultaneously make you admire her for that because like that whole situation is quite fucked up right like you sh your option should not be gotta get married to some rich dude because otherwise you're fucked there should be other options but there weren't at while at the same time not making her like yeah like feminist hero like she's awful like there's it, it kind of balances out those two sides i think really effectively while also being really funny like it the it handles all of that really delicately yeah. i um, feel like we should have actually emphasized really early on in the podcast that this movie is so fucking funny because <laughs> so yeah, fun. i saw this film and it was like a small indie theater it wasn't even half full it was like one third full and people were just laughing incredibly loudly like uproarious laughter all the way through which you don't usually get in like a relatively empty cinema but people were just dying <laughs> yeah our our movie theater too there is um one moment so the the guy who Lady Susan has, like, selected to be her daughter's husband, whom her daughter has absolutely no interest in marrying whatsoever. <laughs> oh, my God. He is... 
played by this man whose name I also didn't look up because I, I think was busy... it's Tom Bennett. Yes, that's right. I was busy looking up things like the publication date of Clarissa, um, and not the names of the actors in this film. And he is so funny. Like I can't. I've never seen this man in anything. He's a minor British comedy actor. I guess okay, this is quite mean, but like he doesn't really have any distinguishing features. So he's the kind of person who's yeah. on like British comedic TV ads and like the third character in sitcoms. So like yeah. he's not famous. People probably will recognize him, but he has a scene in this movie which is I can't spoil it because it's unspoilable. The whole thing is in his performance, but it's just the way he is behaving is just so completely bizarre, but incredibly recognizable and realistic and terrible. He's just this absolute idiot. It just goes on forever and ever. It just keeps ramping up. And it was clearly (laughs) shot in just one go. I don't know how long it is. Maybe like, maybe only like a minute and a half or something, but it just keeps going. (laughs) And I was sitting in the theater and like everyone was laughing, but I I was laughing so hard and, and it just kept going and there's like no relief. I literally began to feel like ill. Like I was just... I was like gasping for breath and like my stomach was like beginning to hurt. It was just beyond all, I mean, oh my God, it was so funny. I was just like, who is this man? Like he should be in everything. Um, Jesus. <laughs> I, don't, I can't even imagine how you'd audition for that, right? Because the role, it, it, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of these roles. There's this role in virtually every Regency drama, you know, there's a funny buffoon. And, you know, in the 90s, you'd get in, like, Hugh Laurie or something. And this guy is on that level, but he's not known in the same way. He's just some random guy. (laughs) Yeah. So I really hope that this film is seen by a lot of the right type of people and look at him and are like, okay, bring him out and put him in something else. (laughs) Right. And I think the what um, this film has that sort of distinguishes it from a lot of those other Austin films, aside from the fact that just the tone is different because of the source material, is that Whit Stillman is a very distinctive director. I've only seen one of his other films, but he's known for having a distinctive style. And it feels very much like an Austin movie. Um, But there is something a little bit just off about it. And that makes it sound like off in a bad way, but I just mean that like, so this scene that we're talking about that we're not describing because it's undescribable, like, it's just on another level of, like, absurdity. And it yeah, does, I think like, it's push too far in a good way. Whereas, like, Hugh Laurie and Sense Sensibility is just kind of, like, acting like a doofus in a sort of standard period way. And this is different. There are different ways of adapting this type of book. You know, you have the rom-com version, like 90s Pride and Prejudice, and then some people have gone for like a more straight drama route and stuff. But this one, it's, I don't want to describe it as modern because that makes it sound like it's a sort of a Knight's Tale thing where they've tried, like, they've added anachronistic stuff. It just seems really sharp and stylized. It doesn't quite reach the point where it's surreal. But just he's got this, I can't really describe it, but he's just got this really specific style that he adds to the film that just makes it that extra step funnier. And it means that you don't have to really think of it as something that's plausibly happening in real life. Yeah, I think sharp is like the word I was using for it the second I saw it too. Like it just has this bite to it, but also stylistically is very, very crisp. Um, And it, it isn't surreal, but it is heightened in a way that really works. And I like that it was stylistically distinct because I love Austin adaptations. There are a bunch of them I think are really great. There are a bunch that aren't so great. But there's like there's nothing wrong with doing another one that is sort of similar in that way. But I do like it when they bring something new. There are a lot of people who hate Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice because... It is, I think, very different. And obviously it also is like very 2000s, like a lot of the um, sort of like... I mean, it's not... See, I live with a couple of huge Jane Austen fans and their complaint for the one by Joe Wright is that it's not social satire. Right. Yeah, it's like that's the complaint and also that they're wearing like ridiculous like dresses that look like they're from like 2005. I mean, yeah. Right. (laughs) Which like I don't care about. Like watching it now is pretty funny because you're like, wow, that... Like, you can tell when this was made. Um, but I actually kind of appreciate that about it, because the miniseries does that does the book so well. Yeah, you don't need to... I think you need to remix it if you're going to do it again, because otherwise you're just going to end up with these stupid situations where you're, you know, remaking the Cinderella cartoon, and it's like, why? <laughs> right. Um, 
and then add something new. And this obviously isn't something that has had versions of it made before. I, I don't think there are any other versions. Certainly there are not that. I mean, if are, there are, they're incredibly known. Right. Um, but it adds something different to this sort of like canon of work that there's so much of that I thought was really fun and kind of new. Um, and I did think, I mean, I, th I thought it was really neat that it was introducing one of her works that wasn't as well known to people who like her stuff. I mean, I, as I said, have read like everything that she's written ever. And I had never read Lady Susan because it's an unfinished thing. And then I went and read it and it was really fun. If you are, like her work um, and go and like this movie and like it, like I would recommend checking it out. I'm sure it's online for free. It took me a couple of hours. It's pretty short. And like, it was really fun and enjoyable. And I kind of was like, all right, I've learned something. Like I've gotten something from this experience besides just watching the super, super fun um, movie. Let's talk about a couple of the little kind of stylistic quirks that were in this movie. Because there were a few just like small details that I think just made it that extra bit funnier. You know when sometimes you see a film and you know just from like the first 10 seconds that it's going to be genius? That's the feeling I had with this one because the two things that happened right at the beginning were the music they had in the credit sequence was literally just gallows music, the drum when <laughs> someone's going to execution. But it's this lighthearted period drama. So you're just like, okay, this is hilarious already. Just the musical cues. And then the second thing was the way they introduced the characters because... Um, basically the only way to introduce the characters without excess exposition is just to put them on screen with their names next to them, which I can easily imagine being a really shit thing. Like, there's a lot of films that start with sort of Star Wars-esque scrolling text, and you're just like, Jesus Christ, just tell a story. <laughs> and with this, it just made it so funny, because he had kind of had the actors posing for portraits outside their houses and stuff and then a spotlight would go on them and then their name would be printed underneath in sort of Austin-esque script and then there'd be a little description so the guy who was the idiot rich man that we were found so hilarious it's like he was just described as a bit of a raffle and I was like <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much it was and and that like that was the sort of thing that was so funny and also conveyed the tone of the film and then also that it was doing something a little bit different stylistically Thinking about it, it's kind of like the freeze frame you get in shitty sitcom from the 90s, where you're just like, <laughs> when you have a little yellow scrolling text. Yes. And also when they had, the, occasionally when they had letters, they'd have the text on the screen, and they managed to illustrate that in a way that was really funny, which is, I honestly, you have to have real imagination to get that to be funny, because God knows, we have a lot of historical adaptations where it's just like, time to read a letter. <laughs> yes, and like because of what he was adapting, like, he obviously cut out most of the letters but a couple of them he, you can't really do anything about because it's a t story told through letters so like at the end there's a thing with a letter that's extremely dramatically important and then there are a couple other things um and so they have to be in there um and he found a really clever way of of delivering that and also just like there's some funny sort of like banter between your like parents about reading things out loud and like glasses and I was like yeah <laughs> this, this is enjoyable <laughs> the costumes of course were also I love the costumes because they were like oh it's going to be slightly before Pride and Prejudice so it's not actually Regency era costumes all of the Austin adaptations have these empire line outfits that make everyone look like they're about four months pregnant um, <laughs> one historical period when women were allowed to be pregnant <laughs> um, yes. this is 15 years beforehand so they've still got their sort of triangular corsets and everyone looks slightly different and they were great yeah the book was like I think they think she wrote it around 1794 so I guess that was around when they um, said it which was all, again like a nice reprieve from all of the dresses looking yeah. <laughs> identical but uh yeah, I think I want to, again, just, like, emphasize, we already said this, just, like, how good Kate Beckinsale is in this movie. She did an Emma in the 90s um, with Mark Strong for, like, ITV or something that oh I my made God. dig up. Yeah, when I read Emma. I feel Emma, like see that, because I've never seen Emma, and that's a really interesting cast. Yeah, and I dug it up because I love Mark Strong so much. And he <laughs> <laughs> yes, and he is perfect casting for Mr. Knightley. And, like, I don't think she's great in it. Fine, I also, guess. She would have been like twenty. Which is the age that Emma yeah. is. Emma's like eighteen or something. Mark Strong is like 
perfect and god he's perfect and she was like i was like fine but i kind of was like oh and she was so like so good in this that i was just like oh i'm happy for you just the sort of like virtuoso dialogue delivery oh my god all the little like bits of ridiculous things that she sort of like tosses aside as she's like continuing to walk down the hall or whatever um were totally fantastic it's probably the best comedic performance i've seen all year so far except perhaps her her co-star for those five minutes on screen and it was just really nice to see an actress who doesn't get a lot to do that often yeah i really hope she gets more roles of this because kate beckinsale is definitely known just for doing the underworld films which don't really require a great deal of acting and are mostly about kicking stuff while wearing a catsuit and in the uk at least she's mostly known as like a tabloid darling maybe not in the past five years or so but there was like a long period when she was just always being photographed with like a long range lens and a bikini at the beach and it was just like (laughs) that was true here also yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and it's very satisfying to get that kind of like oh yeah she's a great actress also like if only there were more roles for women and we could do this more often with people yeah we kind of looked her up and her next movie is her playing the mother of Lucas Till, who in real life is 25, and in the last X-Men movie, which we discussed last week, was playing, like, a 39-year-old. And it was just like, Hollywood is just nonsense. Oh, my God. But I just wanted to, I mean, we mentioned that earlier, but I wanted to emphasize it, because, like, she is honestly so great. Um, And should get nominated for a Golden Globe next year, which won't happen. But in my heart, she will get nominated for a comedy Golden Globe. I will remember this on Twitter (laughs) in eight months. Uh, So I think we're done with that for now. We're going to talk about the ending a little bit at the end, um, and we will uh, tell you when we're going to do that. We're going to talk a little bit generally about Jane Austen and some fandom stuff, which we know that some of you may have some interest in or thoughts about. Do you know about Whit Stillman's book? No, I do not. Okay, so Whit Stillman wrote a book as an accompaniment to this, which he did also with one of at least one of his previous movies. And they're not like novelizations of his films, they're like a companion novel. So he basically wrote a Lady Susan fanfic. Part of it is, it's like a riff on how Jane Austen's nephew, who you mentioned earlier in the podcast, wrote these biographies of her afterwards and people kind of debate over their accuracy and he was kind of yes. trying to make her look different than she was in real life and so on. So Whit Stillman wrote a book which is from the perspective of Lady Susan's nephew or possibly her new husband's nephew. And it's kind of talking about how Jane Austen was incredibly unfair to her in Lady Susan and correcting all of the mistakes. <laughs> so it's like an epistolary fanfic novel, which is simultaneously this narrative from, from the perspective of this fictional nephew and also annotations on the original text of Lady Susan. <laughs> oh my god. I can't believe I didn't hear about this. This it, I didn't, No, it's not been promoted, because I, I found it. Like, I'll link the thing in the show notes, but I found it in this article, and I was like, this seems like it should be more of a thing. It sounds really interesting, and I've not kind of heard about it from any of my friends who are really into Jane Austen, so I guess possibly it's not been published yet. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll put more information in the notes afterwards, but I was just like, this really levels up the level to which this movie is a classic example of Jane Austen fanfic because there is no fandom like Jane Austen fandom. Like the two old classic fandoms are Jane Austen and Sherlock Holmes. And they are both equal in their size and ferocity. There are so many Jane Austen books because they've been out of print for longer. So people have been writing sequels to Pride and Prejudice for like a hundred years. And people were writing them at the time as well and sort of mailing them to each other. Um, Yes. And now we're getting like this new generation of remix things like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which I hated, and the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is like a wonderful, really affectionate, um, quite loose adaptation of Pride and Prejudice as a modern vlog series, which if you've not seen it, I would highly recommend. Yeah, I'd say those are on the opposite ends of the spectrum of of that. Yeah, yeah, like absolutely. <laughs> those, those two have very little bearing on, you know, history. But they're they're kind of what happens after 100 years of fandom when you've got to the point where you have to remix stuff to like a really extreme degree or dig something up from the back catalogue to make something that's like a plausible adaptation. Well, there are just so many books 
written about this stuff. I remember looking up when I was doing my grad school applications last year, I read all of Jane Austen's books. My grad school applications were not about Jane Austen, but I just set myself like a program of reading all of these various things. I remember things. your reading list and I was like, I've literally never read a book. What <laughs> <laughs> compared to this? <laughs> and I had read some of like, I'd read Pride and Prejudice and Emma in high school and not since. And then I read Sense Sensibility in college after writing a paper in which I discussed Sense Sensibility after a professor of mine, whom I will not name, but who is a very famous author, was like, well, you can talk about it without actually having read it. You've, you've watched the movie. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I wrote my paper and then afterwards read it because I was like, I feel guilty about this. Um, but I read or reread all of them. And Mansfield Park, which I want to discuss a little bit when we talk about the ending of this, because I think it's sort of connected, um, has an unbelievably dissatisfying ending. It's I think it's a super interesting book, but I don't like it. I think it's the sort of least good of all of hers. And I sort of looked up online. I was like, did anyone ever write a book sort of correcting the end of this? Or there's another female character in that who is super interesting and kind of disserviced by the book, I think. And so I was like, I wonder if anyone ever like wrote a book about this other character. Oh my fucking God. There are so many books like about Mansfield, like different changes of things. But then there's like, it's all of them. And they're like these sort of like romance novel things from like the eighties on with these sort of like very romance novel covers. And like, I abstractly knew this was a thing, but like you go on Amazon and they're everywhere. It is a machine. It's an industry. And I was just like, wow. There's so many, like, because even before the era of self-published eBooks, I mean, obviously there's also like extremely well-respected, well-reviewed Austin books, like Austin fanfic books, but the sheer volume is astonishing. Yeah. It was staggering to me how much stuff was on there. And then, like, authors who, like, that's just what they do. It's, like, produce dozens. Actually, can I talk for a moment about how mad I was about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? Please. It's <laughs> Jane Austen podcast, so. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a diehard Pride and Prejudice fan or anything. Like, I love the adaptations I've seen. But I watched the movie for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I found it so annoying because is by far the most well-known, highly publicized, and well-funded one of these fanfics. And it's written by someone who clearly has no personal affection for Pride and Prejudice. So it was written by a guy who was hired to write kind of these mashup concept novels by a publisher. And they were like, we're going to take classic novels and we're going to mix them with like ninjas or pirates or zombies or whatever. <laughs> and it was just like, it just felt like such a kick in the teeth to like 150 years of women being super analytical and passionate about Pride and Prejudice. And then this dude showing up and being like, wouldn't it be great if we modernized this by making all the women really powerful? And it was like, that's an interesting interpretation. <laughs> How are you going to make them powerful in a way that they weren't powerful in Pride and Prejudice? It's like, well, we're going to put them in these kind of costumes that are like the sexy version of a Pride and Prejudice costume. And then they're going to be really good with an axe. <laughs> Oh, and, it, and it's just like, I'm trying to remember the other deep, but it's like they also kind of misinterpreted like aspects of the relationship between Darcy and Lizzie. So Darcy, instead of being sort of really socially awkward and misunderstood and sort of like brooding, there's several scenes where he just seems like a douchebag, but in yeah. the wrong way. So it just is yeah. misunderstanding of the appeal of Darcy. Obviously one of the most appealing romantic heroes ever. Um, yes. <laughs> and it was, just, it was just so maddening for me to watch this film and to see it just get this huge amount of promotion. And the author is very successful. He also made Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and he's now got a blossoming Hollywood career off the back of these films. And I'm just like, do this with like Moby Dick. Do Moby Dick and Sulu, <laughs> right? Those are things which go well together. If you want to make Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, you have to look at like the text of the novel and write it in character instead of just, ugh, ugh. <laughs> Like well, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is also a very, very different type of adaptation. You know, it's set in the present day and it's all video blogging and it's wonderful because they understand why the book is good. Or like Clueless. Yeah, Clueless, perhaps, Sally. Perhaps the finest Austin Adams. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not actually, I'm not being facetious at all. I actually think Sense Sensibility is the best one, but Clueless might be number two. Clueless is a um, piece. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the sort of like difficulty with stuff like that is that when you're reading these books, 
part of the like trick with your brain is that you have to understand that like life was just very different <laughs> for people. And this is the thing that I think sometimes happens with Shakespeare too. I was just talking to someone about the taming of the shrew and I realized this is completely a tangent, but it does tie into what I'm talking about. Like taming of the shrew is a completely sexist play in my opinion. Like I really just don't think there's anything like redeeming about it in that sense and people are always trying to be like actually it's secretly feminist like it's not it's just really it's just a really sexist play and i think it's very difficult um for people who love shakespeare to grapple with that and the reality is that like our contemporary like feminist whatever mindset these people didn't have that like it just wasn't how it worked and that doesn't mean that people from the past couldn't write interesting female characters or whatever but that wasn't reality, right? And so when you read books from, say, the 19th century, the female characters can get happy endings that are very different from what we would perceive them to be, and that's kind of okay. Like, the end of Middlemarch, which is my favorite book, people get very upset about because it basically falls into this pattern. But women have lived for a long time in less than ideal like circumstances that doesn't mean their lives sucked forever right i mean like in certain ways yes but you just had to deal with it right and so the desire to sort of be like and now they're sexy and have access right is this inability to grasp obviously austin books are all about the interior lives of women and things yes. that are not necessarily witnessed by men and then it's well, like if you add an axe to that it's not adding anything like you've yeah. removed the time that's taken from people having conversations it's totally ridiculous but i think that you have to just be at peace with that and i think actually with this movie that a lot of what he did really well was both give it that modern slant without going too far right because it is very possible to just sort of like tip too far in that direction and have it be absurd and and not feel right anymore um which i think it did so i guess we should talk about the ending of that now yeah. so spoiler warning if you don't want yeah. to know the ending switch off now so the ending of this movie is interesting i think actually on a technical level it stumbles a little bit it feels like it sort of goes on for too long like there are multiple places where it feels like it's going to end and then it doesn't which is interesting because the movie's actually quite short what basically happens is that lady susan and reginald are going to get married and then her schemes are revealed to him she's got this other thing going on with the guy she was originally involved which with. which i find hilarious because like in the very beginning they introduce like her handsome other suitor who she caused the drama with at the previous house lord mannering or sir mannering or whatever his name yeah. is and he's this brooding very you know he's described as like the handsome you know lord but he then just doesn't appear in the film for the rest of the film he's like a non-entity and then right at the end he comes back yes <laughs> he's consistently talked about in the yeah yeah he's he's a he's, he, also he's present yeah. but he's not present on screen yeah and so then he then is like i'm done with you but then she manages to sort of like get him back in her clutches and this poor, poor daughter meanwhile is just like getting batted around between all these people but what ultimately winds up happening is that reginald and the daughter get married which is and... the couple you'd be reaching for if this was pride and prejudice <laughs> right exactly and i think initially i kind of was just because i was like this girl needs to escape right? <laughs> like, she needs to get out and like you just want like you want him to sort of see reality right like it's a natural impulse is to be like you, you know no i mean you're then, sim you simultaneously want him to see reality you want the daughter to go away because like her mother is just 100 percent just clearly abusive but also you want lady susan to win because it's really entertaining just watching her keep going <laughs> oh i didn't want her to win like i didn't want her to get I did not want that to happen. But at a certain <laughs> point, I was like, this dude needs to just go away. But I was like, this is not, like, he's not a catch, right? Like, you don't, mm, maybe not. But they, of course, wind up getting married because it's completely written in the stars from, like, minute one of the movie. That's what's going to happen. And Lady Susan winds up getting married to Sir James, the idiot, who she had tried to foist upon her daughter, the idea basically being he's an idiot so she can do whatever she wants. And in fact, uh, Lord Mannering, her previous conquest, is like living at their house at the end. But the implication is that he's already impregnated her. And then on like her wedding night to the buffoon, she's like, I feel like I may already be with child. <laughs> yes, and he's like, wow, so amazing. <laughs> By the way, just, to, just for, to interject for a second, I love that this film was rated U, which I guess it was rated G in the US. 
I have no idea. Because I was like, I I can't even remember the last time I watched a contemporary film that wasn't a children's film that was rated U. And in the kind of warnings at the beginning, when you get warnings like, oh, there's going to be some partial nudity or someone gets stabbed with an axe, it said that there was no content that would harm or offend anyone. And I was like, it's harmless and inoffensive. I love it. <laughs> of course, it's all about like a psychopath ruining people's lives. but <laughs> Right. It's fine. This is, again, back to the sort of like, bad people don't usually win in Austin, right? And like, she definitely wins. But the thing, the like major thing that's added um, plot-wise in the film that's not in the book is this thing with mannering. Yeah, the threesome the angle. Because I was like, there is no way that Jane Austen right. a threesome into her book. <laughs> not even a chance. So I was not surprised by this, but I thought it was really interesting because it adds this angle of like, she is really like succeeded, right? So like in the book, she has succeeded in the sense that like, She's not destitute anymore. But she's also being punished because she's shackled to this buffoon. Right. Um, and whereas with this, it's sort of like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was sort of thinking again about this idea of morality and that all of these other books end with sort of like the, the good people getting together or like in um, Pride and Prejudice, like Wickham marries Lydia, which is pretty awful. And you know that's not going to wind up going well down the line. But, but it's also, also very plausible. So it's like, well, that's the deal. And so in Mansfield Park, which was the one I kept thinking about watching this, is, which is the weird one. So it's about this young woman who is very poor and her mother's sister like married a rich guy. And she goes and winds up living with her cousins for a while. And she falls in love with her cousin who's like a rector or something. And he's the most boring person on the face of the earth. He like moralizes to her all the time about what she should be doing. And he's completely unappealing in like every way. And he's her cousin, which like I realized in the 19th century, like this was, you know, was fine, but like, it's a bit odd reading it now. And then these like siblings come and visit like someone else in town. They're friends with, I can't remember the details. And they're both like, basically like really sexy and charming. Like that's essentially the characterization. And the sister is very much like Lady Susan. Like she's sort of the most similar character that Austin ever wrote, except she actually has like some sense of morality. And the brother like flirts with this main character like all the time. And he's so compelling and you like really want them to get together. And then at the end he leaves and the sister has sort of not been treated well. And then they both have to leave. And then the main character winds up marrying her cousin. And I was just like, this is awful. <laughs> like, it was so unpleasant. And there was been one film adaptation recently of this, which was like in the 90s. And they changed it dramatically because the movie, like, it's just like, what are you going to do? And they made her like really spunky, which she's not. And it was like, I actually thought watching it, they were going to change the ending because they make. Uh, the guy's played by Alessandro Nivola and he's like so appealing that I was just like oh my and they like they actually I think like kiss at some point which they don't in the book and then she still marries her cousin at the end and I was just like what is this like this is awful and I was just so fascinating to me to think of like sometimes it's actually like it works better for the story to have that happen and but she clearly like, as she got older, like, that was not, like, she wasn't going to do that. And I was thinking back to the sort of, And like, also, if you're thinking, will it, like, if I'm sharing with this as an adult and you want to be living in society and be respected, you can't have, like, an immoral boo. Because, like, if Samuel Richards or whatever his name was was getting all scandalous for writing, like, fucking Pamela, then... <laughs> and that, like, her favourite book of his was the one where, like, everyone is boring. <laughs> right? And so the... Like, at the end of this book, it it all is very dull. And she couldn't sort of wind up putting them together. And that in the end of this one, the sort of... She's not exactly a villain, but, like, the closest thing there is to a villain, like, the one who's fucking up everyone else's lives, is allowed to get away with it, kind of. And it's so much more narratively satisfying. Like, it's so much better. Um, and... The just idea. And there's also, I feel like there's a sense of continuation in the sense that there really isn't for other 
stories of this type because usually the idea is like it ends with marriage and that's the point yes. that's the completion point but with this the fact that she's married this guy is basically the beginning because she's just setting off like a new cascade of insane lies because she's pregnant with another man's child she's got lord mannering who is just separated from his hysterical wife who's now living with her and her new husband who's an idiot and her daughter has just married the man that she was previously secretly engaged to so she's just got like there's this whole like cavalcade of, of chaos that's about to start in the epilogue of the film. Yeah, then that's like the modern twist on it, right? Because like in the original text, it is just like, and then both of them got married and like she went off and like vanished and never talked to her daughter again. (laughs) And it also just feels really, it feels really realistic to me in the kind of the way that that kind of person is. Because if you're really terrible, at some point you get comeuppance in the sense that people stop trusting you and they're like, this person's awful, avoid them. But in a general life sense, if you're really ruthless, you're more likely to succeed. So she's succeeded in that she's got like a rich husband and also everyone she's ever met is like, you're a psycho. I'm never going to trust you again. But to her, that doesn't matter. So it's fine. Right. There are always more people. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's always somebody else. Um, And the thing with like sleeping with the other guy and then having him knock her up, like what I thought, what I kind of liked about that was that like, it isn't something Austin would ever write, but like that did happen. Yeah the past and right? it was definitely, like, i mean there was definitely you can read austin books and you can know that it's happening under the surface so i just thought it was such a clever way to end it and hilarious like and when this stupid man is delivering the kind of like yeah and like and she's already pregnant and, me, and the friend is kind of looking at him like really like that's interesting <laughs> like, is she now <laughs> like he's just like oh my god like men have are amazing like and of course he'd believe that right like men don't know anything (laughs) intuition it's intuition yeah feminine feminine wisdom (laughs) so uh we liked this film we We did to all of you highly recommended yeah at some point in the distant future we will do a proper uh pride and prejudice episode since we know that everyone always wants to talk about and hear about Pride and Prejudice. Um, but that's it for Austin for this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about Catherine Bigelow a little bit, which is very exciting because I love her. Um, but I've never seen Point Break. Which so which films talking. specifically are we going to be discussing? Yes, so we're going to be doing Point Break. And I think, we're gonna, are we going to do K-19? Widowmaker? Do I've that not too? seen it and I will be happy to watch it. All right, it's Harrison Ford. So let's do both of them. You can watch either or both listeners and we'll discuss. I mean, um, everyone's seen Point Break. And just to absolutely <laughs> clarify, we 100% mean the classic Point Break with Keanu Reeves. Yes. Not the very bad, dull-looking version that just came out. Oh, God. Yeah, please don't watch that. We also will not be watching that. I think when we were discussing this, uh, you sort of were like, should we watch the new one for comparison? And I was like, no, we should not do that. I do not think that we need to subject ourselves no. to that. Even the trailers were a little nauseating. I, again, have never seen Point Break, and just watching those trailers, I was like, I'm personally offended. Yeah, I but- mean, Point Break is a charming action bro movie of the 80s, 90s kind of general genre, whereas the new Point Break looks like a two-hour version of those GoPro videos where guys jump off hills in wingsuits. <laughs> yeah, so we will be watching those two films, or... You, I guess, will only have to watch one of them. And then we'll be discussing them next week, so you can join in. Yeah, I think that's about all that we have. Um, If you enjoyed this week, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. And you can find us on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. See you next week. Bye. (laughs) 